At 10 years old, Cheryl Guyant's happy childhood was turned upside down when she received the news that she was adopted. She began looking for answers in every aspect of her life. She spent days lying in the grass, gazing up at planes in the blue sky above, wondering if her mother was on board. Other times, she would search through faces in the grocery store, hoping to find some familiarity in a woman shopping beside her. Cheryl's search for her mother took an abrupt turn when at 15, she learned that her mother was dead. However, it wasn't until years later that Cheryl finally learned the true identity of her mother, as well as the shocking details surrounding her brutal death. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. It took years of searching for answers before Cheryl learned that her mother was also named Cheryl, but went by Sherry Okoro. After enduring a troublesome upbringing, Sherry Okoro left Michigan and set out for California. While staying at a rooming house in San Francisco known as the Pink Palace, Sherry came into contact with Leonard Lake, one of California's most infamous serial killers. Lake took advantage of Sherry Okoro by offering her work on his marijuana farm in the mountains. When she agreed, the nightmare began. Lake, along with his accomplice, Charles Ng, kidnapped Sherry Okoro, making her one of the first victims in their sinister project they called Operation Miranda. It is believed they had up to 25 victims. Sherry Okoro was kept in an underground bunker where she was raped, tortured, and murdered by the two monstrous men. Police eventually arrested Ng in 1985 after he was caught shoplifting from a hardware store. Lake was arrested shortly after for the illegal possession of a gun silencer. While Lake was in police custody, he took the coward's way out, swallowing a cyanide pill he had sewn into the lining of his jacket. In 1999, Ng was convicted of 11 counts of murder and sentenced to death. He currently remains in San Quentin State Prison. Although Ng and Lake took away Sherry's life, they could not take away her voice. When investigators searched for evidence at the crime scene, they found an 11-page letter written by Sherry Okoro in which she detailed her life story and her hopes for a happily ever after. In her book, A Letter from Sherry, Cheryl Guyant uplifts the words of Sherry and tells the story her mother never lived to share. Today, Cheryl joins me to tell her story, as well as her mother's, and discusses the amazing work she continues to do for the foster care system. I was adopted by a wonderful family in 76, and we meshed well together. I was six months. I was a foster child there first, and then I was adopted when I was three years old. And so it was just a wonderful experience and a loving, happy home, great parents, great sibling. I had no idea that I was adopted until the age of 10. So at the age of 10, um, I had a little brother. He too was adopted, and he started school Um, I was in the third grade and he started in the kindergarten and he, for whatever reason, he knew that he was adopted, but I didn't. And so he would go to school and tell everyone he was adopted. And I used to say, hey, don't tell everyone that. Everyone doesn't need to know that. And so one day I asked my grandmother, my adopted grandmother, like, why does he go to school and tell everyone he's adopted? And she very coldly said, well, why are you worried about it? Because you were adopted too. And so I was very taken back. I was like, oh, it ruined my life. It ruined my childhood. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't want to go to school after that. 
my parents were foster parents. They were fostering my whole childhood. And so I knew that about foster kids because they were in and out of the house. I just didn't know that I was one of them. And that was one of my favorite childhood memories was, you know, playing with my foster sibling. And so once I was told that I was adopted at 10 years old, you don't know the difference between foster and adoption. And so I began to be very afraid. You know, I would see the the social workers come to the house, pick kids up, drop them off. And so now I'm thinking, I better be good or else that lady is going to come and take me away because I'm not their child. And so I just really struggled with that my whole childhood. But before that, my life was so perfect and there was so much love that I didn't want to disrupt that by sharing my feelings with my family. So I just kind of handled that internally. Can I ask you, Cheryl, the source of that devastation, did it all center on that perceived feeling of impermanence that you could be taken away at any moment? Or was there additional associated feelings that made you feel upset by realizing it or by learning that? Oh, it was it was just many different things. That was a main one. The other one was, who am I? Now I have this identity crisis, like, who are my parents? I would be at the grocery store with my mom and I would see random women and say, could that be my mom? I wonder, is that my mom? Or I would look up at planes and, and gaze into the sky and just say, I wonder, is my mom on that plane? You know, it was just a, it was a whole mystery after that. And once I, after I learned that information, nothing changed, no one's life changed in that house, but mine. Like I went back that night, that, that day, after I learned that information, I go back home and everything is normal. Like, you know, every word is the same and normal and for me, I'm just looking at everyone now, like looking at everyone's features and and looking at how I feel like I'm a misfit. And it was it was just it was too young for me to be told. I was too young to be told that. And so I kind of dealt with that, like I said, in Turari until I was about 15 and I wanted to ask more questions. Um, so I went back to my grandmother because I knew she would tell the truth. And I asked her, Grandma, what happened to the people who had me? Because I was so loyal to my family that I could not even come to say, what happened to my mom? Because I had a mom and I had a dad, you know? So it was disrespectful in my mind to even address my biological parents as mom or dad when talking about them. So I asked her and she says, oh, she says, your mom's dead and your dad did it. And so when she told me that, again, I had a lump in my throat and I just could not swallow. And I just went to school and it just consumed me all that day. I remember like it was yesterday. So I'm now I'm like, okay, now I'll never know my mom. I'll never know my dad. You know, I, I won't know my background because they're gone. And if my dad killed my mom, then of course I don't want anything to do with him. So I kind of chewed on that for about three years and I didn't talk to my parents about it. I just kept it inside. And then I turned 18 and I have a, a big sister that's 10 years older than me. And, she, and I asked her, I said, hey, do you remember anything about my adoption? And she says, I remember that you had an aunt that was my age. Um, and she looked like Pippi Longstocking. And she had two really long, long, pretty red ponytails. And we used to see her when we, when we went to visitations because they would take me to see my grandmother and my aunt during visitations when the, the adoption was in process. 
And so she says, and I also remember that something really, really bad happened to your mind. Like whatever it was, it, it made the Grand Rapids newspaper. It was really, really bad. It was very hush-hush. When the kids came around, they didn't talk about it around us, but it was something major. And I said, really? And she's like, yeah, I don't know what it was, though. So I went and I paid a visit to the Grand Rapids um, library. And there I went through microfilm because at the time we didn't have the internet stuff and all of that. So um, I went through microfilm for weeks just looking for titles through the Grand Rapids Press, just titles of a Grand Rapids woman getting murdered or something happening, something tragic to a Grand Rapids woman. And I didn't, I didn't come up with anything. So I kind of gave it a rest and um, I was 18. So now I, I started to travel and I'm working and, and now I'm getting more out into the world and people are asking me, you know, they would come up and speak Spanish to me and I didn't, they thought I was Spanish and I did a lot of home health care for the elderly and they would always say, honey, you're so pretty. What's your background? And, and I didn't know. And that started to make me want to know more, you know, like, am I Spanish? Like, I don't know. And so I started to do a little more digging and of course still didn't come up with much. So fast forward to 2002, I was 26 years old. Um, my biological aunt, which is my mom's sister, um, she found me. And she said that she was looking through some old pictures. It was near Christmas time and she was just kind of looking through some old pictures. And she found the last picture that we took together um, before my adoption was final. And it had my last name on it, my new last name. And so she began to call people in the phone book and she got one of my cousins. And my cousin had knew that I had been looking for them as well. And so when she asked, she says, yes, my aunt and my uncle adopted her. And she's looking for you guys, too. And she was just so happy. And she was crying. And she was just very happy that she finally found me. And so when, I, when she connected, when my cousin connected me with my aunt, my aunt confirmed that my mom had, in fact, been killed, but not by my dad. Uh, my dad was actually a pastor at the time, which was another big shock. Like all this, all this time, I'm thinking my dad killed my mom, and I find out when I meet him, he's a he's actually a pastor. Um, so she she gave me the information and gave me a business card of the detective that handled the case. So I reached out to him via email and very, very nice guy. He, he responded almost immediately and, and said that, you know, this case had been the most intriguing case in his career because it was still affecting people to that day. And he said that he had retired and that he would familiarize himself with my mom's part of the case um, and call me back. And so he did that the same week. And I, you know, when you think of a case being so old, I, I didn't think he would be so compassionate. I mean, that, that Calveras Police Department has been amazing to work with. They handle this case, the care, and I mean, they, they're very prompt in their responses. And it's just been, you know, great working with them. So he... Went back to the office. He familiarized himself with my mom's part of the case and he called me back. And he said, I have something for you. And when he said that, I got chills because I'm like, oh my God, what is, what is it? And he says, I have an 11 page letter that we found at the scene of the crime that your mom wrote. And I, I couldn't even believe it. It was like this mother, this imaginary mom 
that I had always imagined that during my childhood, she's finally like coming to life, but she's gone. You know, that, that letter was everything for me. And so he said, I'm going to get permission to release the letter to you. Um, and I'll put it in the mail. And I said, detective, I really, really appreciate all of this, but I really need you to read me that letter. I can't wait for a letter to make it to Michigan from California. This is, I have to, can you please read it to me? And so he read the letter to me and it, I was just in disbelief. The letter started off saying it all started when I was 12 years old and I was, my mom would get drunk and allow these men in the house to have sex with me. And that was the first, her first sentence in that letter. And so it was just so emotional reading her life. And I really feel like my whole childhood, everything that I had thought about in regards to her, she answered in that letter. She hit everything in that letter that I had always wondered about. Like, I wonder what happened when she was a teenager. How was she as a child? You know, what happened when she had me? And she kind of covered everything in her last words. And she, when the detective finished the letter, my mom wrote, so here I am now in the middle of the woods and hopefully I live happily ever after. And she wrote her social security number and her birthday. And her birthday is the same as my mom. And so I was like, oh my God, you know, it was just a, a big shock to me. So once I read that letter, I started to see my mom as, even before imagining her being captured by these serial killers, I already seen her as a child with duct tape and a prisoner of her own family. Um, she suffered incense with her father at five. Like she never, ever had a chance. She never had a voice, you know? So I, I said to myself, because finally I started to feel something for her because my, my adopted mom, I mean, we were, I was a mama's girl. We were really, really close. And I never could imagine having a love like that for someone else until I got that letter and read her last words and I felt her words. And I said, you know what? I am going to tell her story because according what I'm reading, it doesn't, she didn't have a chance in life. No one listened to her and I'm going to tell their story. And so it took me long time. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but this is how it, it came about. I was in Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan, and I was in an English class. And the teacher asked, hey, can you, and we're going to do an in-class uh, in assignment, and it's going to be about a, a monster that you battled when you were a child. And I automatically thought about my grandmother because she gave me that information that ruined my childhood. And so when I wrote the story, um, the teacher ended up taking it to my academic counselor and they, and they were just blown away by the story. And so when I get back in class, the teacher pulled me to the side. He's like, is this, is this true? And I said, yeah. And he's like, well, do you mind if we, you know, if I read it to the class? And I said, you know, go ahead. And so after that, my counselors, they started to say, hey, maybe, you know, journalism will be a, a great field for you because I had just started college. And so um, that's how the book was born. I took that and I applied it to that project. So it took me 20 years to write the book, though, because I needed more research. I needed more information about her. So in 2013, I found out that it was a closed adoption. 
But in 2013, I found out if your mom is deceased or if one parent is alive and gives you permission that they can, you can get your adoption files. And so I reached out to Bethany Christian Services, who was great. And they, they gave me my files. And because my mom was 16 when she had me, all of the things that were going on with her was also in my adoption file. So I learned a lot and it was very thick. So I learned a lot from, about her and her story and her life through my adoption files. Because we both were wards of the state of Michigan at one point. And so I got that information. I met my father. He shared some of the stories that he remembered of her and, and how sweet, you know, she was and, and their, their time together, which was very, very short. Um, but it was still insight of someone who actually knew her. Um, her family didn't have a lot of information because it was just, it was just a lot of tension with her and her parents. And so she was in foster homes starting at 12. And then she went to Catholic schools and different foster homes. And, and so they really didn't have a relationship with her. So I didn't learn a lot through them other than some of the childhood stories that my grandmother, which would be her mom, shared with me. And so finally, I just felt like, you know, I think something happened with the case with Charles Dean because he's still on death row. And I said, you know, I really have to get this. I have to finish this project. Like I promised my mom that I would do this. And so I finally released it in 2002 on their birthday last year, May 28th. So I'm very happy, you know, with the book. Um, I think that I did her justice. Um, of course, it's just inspired by a true story. Um, but I think, I think that I did pretty well with that. My, my um, biological dad, he actually says, you know, Reading this, it reminds me of a lot of stuff. And I feel like your mom is channeling through you through this process because some of this stuff sounds really familiar. Your book is called A Letter from Sherry. Can you describe what the book is about exactly? Sure. So it's inspired by her story. Um, and I start off when she was you know, 12 years old, and, and she was the oldest out of, I think, five kids. Um, and it's just about her childhood and, and the things that she went through. Um, also about the relationship with her and my father. And they, she really was really crazy about him in her letter. She was really head over heels for him. And when she got pregnant, she kind of thought that that was going to give her a sense of responsibility and they can start a family. But of course, he was only 18 and she was 15, 16, and it just didn't work out. So the book is, is, is about her childhood and her time with my dad and um, her time a little bit, I touched on a little bit of when she was captured, but I didn't really, I don't have a lot of detail about that. So I kind of kept it the way I kept it because this case was very gruesome and I just, I just didn't want to go too deep into that. Um, but I just really wanted to tell her story because I really felt like all of the adults in her life failed her, especially her parents. And they didn't allow her to speak. She didn't have a voice. And so I really, in my heart, feel like she let, left that letter for me. And I just, I had to do something with it. We'll be right back with more of this story. Can you share, as much as you're comfortable, what exactly did happen to your mom? So the detective said that she had 
went out to California. She had three more kids after me um, from this guy in Lansing, Michigan. And he had um, gotten a lot of warts in Michigan and, and talked her into moving to California. And so once they got to California, he ended up leaving her out there with my baby brother. And um, she was staying at this place called the Pink Palace. And Leonard Lake actually lived in that apartment building. And so he wasn't a stranger to those people. They kind of knew him. And so he decided to go on this whole spree. And he started luring people to the mountains. And so he asked, my mom at the time was staying with the, a guy in a wheelchair and she was taking care of him. So uh, Charles Ng and Leonard, well, Leonard, Leonard Lake asked the guy, hey, I have a marijuana farm up in the mountains and we're looking for people to help us out with it. Are you interested? So my mother left my little brother with a babysitter and she went with her friend and they got in the car with Leonard Lake and he drove them up there. Now it is said that they, I've heard that they dumped him like halfway up and kept her, but I really don't know the detail on that, but I do know that they kept her in and they had her in, uh, in an underground bunker. And they were just using the women as sex slaves. And they think that my mom was one of the first victims of, of, the, of his whole little killing spree. She was like one of the first victims. And, and actually, I just learned as I, I mean, the story goes on and on, but I also just learned that... Um, that she could have possibly been the plot for he. This guy had a thing in his head called the Miranda Project, where he wanted all these women. He wanted to capture these women and make them his sex slaves and his just his slaves. And so they're thinking that she was was the first one that suffered from that. And um so when they found her, when they cracked the case open, they found three of her bone fragments. I think it was like a piece of her neck bone and a couple of pieces of her leg. And um, the detectives actually flew, went to Michigan and released those to her family. So I have since um, submitted DNA because now they've opened the case back up for DNA because they have all these remains that they don't know who they are. And so back then, they didn't have the technology that we have now, of course, with the DNA testing. So I think last year or 2021, um, they opened it back up. And um, so I have submitted my DNA to see if they, if they match, you know, um, any of the remains that they have left. After learning from your mother's hand, from the letter, what her home life had been like. What feelings did you have when you encountered her family later on and how the remains were released to that family? Um, so they were, you know, back in the 70s, black and white relationships were still frowned upon. You know, that they were just coming together. Were, Black and white people could have a relationship. Well, my parent, my grandparents, her parents were a little bit on the racist side. And so they didn't like that she dealt with African-American men. And that's what she dealt with. But it could possibly be from them getting drunk and letting black guys come in the house and have sex with her. Because that's what she said in her letter. Those were her words. And so psychologically, maybe she just took that as what she preferred. So that's who she dealt with. My siblings are biracial as well, all of them. They have three. And I knew that from the letter, even though I, I met my aunt and I met my, when it, before I met them, I was a little apprehensive because I was like, okay, I know from the letter, from everything that they really weren't happy with. 
her having kids by African-American men. So are they, you know, are they still racist or how are they going to feel about me? I have an African-American son. How are they going to treat him? You know, so I, I, I wasn't sure how that meet and greet was going to go. But I mean, I didn't feel when I did meet them, I didn't feel, you know, anything. They were very happy. Um, they were very, very emotional. Um, they say I look like her a lot. So I can imagine, you know, after all these years and what happened to her and they find her daughter and, and I look like her. So I had a lot of um, empathy for them. I really did. I had a lot of empathy for them because I could only imagine how they could be feeling. When was the first time that you saw a photograph of your mother? The first time I saw a photograph of her was my aunt sent me a picture of her. And it was a picture of her smiling. She sent me a picture of her at in her 20s. And then she sent me a picture of her when she was like 12, like a school picture. And I was, I just was like, I can't even describe it. Like, I was very, very emotional when I seen her pictures. Um, and then shortly after that, the detective sent me some pictures of her that, that the killers had taken of her while she was uh, captured. Um, of course, they had to crop them because they were taking, like, nude photos and all type of stuff of these women that they had. And so the pictures that they sent me, they were like cropped at the, the neck. Um, one of the pictures was when she was first captured. And I don't know if you've seen that picture, but it was a picture of her sitting in the bed in the cabin that they had held her in. And the cabin, um, when you look at like A&E or any documentaries about this, you know, when you, you see the same background, it's just really really disheartening to know that that she went through that you know and and not to know like what did she go through so in the book I I just said that they shot her because I didn't really want to get into the details of what they could and what they probably did you know they there's no telling what they did to her um to just find three of her bones can you imagine what they did? Like these guys were um, putting the remains in incinerators and they were using vice grips to cut up and dismember the body parts. And, and it was just crazy. So I, I, I just had no idea. I couldn't even imagine what they did. To her. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. When you were 10 and had the shock of your whole world being turned upside down from a comment and then again at 15 from a comment and then at after 26 eventually connecting with the detective and learning what happened to your mother I can't imagine those shocks and the succession of the shocks and the enormity of what you had to process with your mother in this story and I am curious if having gone through such shocks to your system and the world that you had existed in prior to the conversation with the detective, do you feel it had prepared you in any way for that, the enormity um, and the sort of unfathomable nature of what you were hearing? What was that process like for you? I wasn't prepared. I was not, I was as prepared as I was to hear that I was adopted. I just wasn't prepared at all. I mean, I didn't even have, never did I think one day in my life, like, I wonder if my mom is, is she, I never even thought like, I wonder if my mom's still alive. I never even thought that, you know? Um, so I wasn't prepared for the news that my aunt actually shared with me but when I got the letter I think that was the most shocking 
when I received, when they told me that my mom had left a letter, I just, that was the most shocking to me because I felt like she left it for me. I know that she left that letter. It wasn't addressed to dear Cheryl, you know, but I, in my heart, she left that letter for me. She wanted me to know the story. One thing that stood out to me, and I wanted to make sure that I, I point this out, my mom at, at 16 years old, and this was in my, my adoption files, they were trying to get her to give me up for adoption, relinquish her rights, and she wouldn't do it. Then she kept saying, no, I'm gonna, I want to keep my baby. I want her. I don't want to give her up. And so they fought and fought for a couple of months, and then I guess my mom in her last moment, she says, um, the only way I'll give my daughter up is if you find her a family that looks like her. So either you have to find her a biracial family or you have to find her a black family. Or I'm not giving her up. Because she can't go through what I know she could possibly go through. After she gave birth to me, she, she ran away with me for six months because she was afraid to show her parents that I was going to be mixed. And so she ran away with me. And so she knew what could happen in that situation. So she saved my life by doing that. Um, I, in my mind, I think she did. Um, just to make sure that I'm in the right place, you know, and I'm not, I don't feel like a misfit. And it's crazy because I felt like a misfit my whole life after I found out I was adopted. My whole childhood, it was a secret. I never told anyone, not a friend, not a boyfriend. As I got older, I never, I couldn't say that I was adopted. Because my life was so normal at home. I just couldn't believe that I couldn't be a part of this family biologically. And so, um, so she saved my life by, by making sure that I had a right fit, you know, that I was going to be growing up in home with people that looked like me and that could love me for who I, who I was, you know. So I just think at 16 years old, that was a big, Big decision for her um, to make and to to put that um, ultimatum. Give to give the, the agency that ultimatum. It's either you find her a family that she fits in, or I'm keeping her. And so I just think that was worth um, noting. And now that your book is finished, and it took so long for you to, you know, as they say, a book is never finished. You just surrender it. Yes. Um, at the end, what are you feeling in? What is the space that you're residing in now feel like in this whole journey of yours with your identity and your relationship to your mom and her identity and everything? How are you feeling now? So I feel like I came through on my promise to her and I told her story. Um, I promised her that I was going to tell her story to the world. At that time, I had no idea that like People Magazine was going to pick it up and Daily UK picked it up and New Zealand picked it up. I mean, it really went across the globe. Um, so I really told the world her story. So now um, what I'm up to now is I'm in the process of restructuring my nonprofit. Um, so I started a nonprofit for foster kids. It's Shania Rose Community Development Corp. And um, we're restructuring it now. Um, after COVID, I, it, we, the last event I did was in 2019, right before COVID, where we collected over 150 gowns for um, foster kids to go to prom. Because I know that's a huge expense for foster families and you know, I just want every foster child to have the life that I had, you know, and I, we weren't rich or any of that, but I had the things that I needed. You know, I never not, I wasn't a, ever able not to do something to attend a dance or, you know, my parents took really good care of me. And I know some parents can't do that, some foster parents. So 
I just, I've always wanted to give back and um, to, to just bring you to speed on what, what made me start this nonprofit. My little brother, the one that I spoke about, um, he thought that he had a little girl. He was incarcerated and he called me in 2015 and says, I have a baby and her name is Shania and she's almost one and she's in foster care. I need you to go get her. And so I'm in Florida and I'm like, what? And so now I'm thinking, okay, my niece is in foster care. Let me, so I fly to Michigan. I find out what's going on. The baby, she's in foster care, um, but she's with her sibling's grandmother. So she was, she was safe. Long story short, DNA test, it wasn't his baby. But by this time and in my world, DNA doesn't matter. So I, I had established a relationship with her foster mom and established a relationship with her. You know, she was a part of the family. She had our last name. And then when I found out that she wasn't my brother's uh, daughter, of course, I was a little disappointed, but it, you know, I was still going to be in her life. And so I started a nonprofit in her name because I began to see the struggles um, that her foster mom was going through as far as getting help or, you know, just the resources and things that she was going through with the agencies. And I said, you know, I want to step in and I want to help like I have to. And so I started the nonprofit. And like I said, where I'm restructuring it now to where it's more of an online resource. Um, in the event something else happens and, you know, COVID ruins everything. And so now it'll be more of an online um, resource as we build partnerships with um, different businesses in the community. And I also have started to take on some public speaking. And so I want to speak at foster conventions, adoption conventions, um, anywhere where I can help share my story um, to help others. I had sent my post-adoption worker one of, one of my books, and I signed it for her because she helped me tremendously with all my paperwork and, and everything. So I sent her a book, and she read it. And she emailed me back and she said, what a tribute, what a story that you gave, a voice that you gave to your mom. And she says, and on a professional note, I really look at things differently now. You know, I look back in the past and as I move forward with children, I'll take a step back and remember that everyone has a story. And these kids are suffering from losses, you know, love, they need love and attention. And she said it really, really tapped into what, you know, to my job and, and what I'm going to do and how I'm going to move forward. So when she said that, that was everything for me because that's all that the kids need. And, you know, I always say every child needs at least one person. If it's a teacher, a coach, a neighbor, an aunt, an uncle, every child, I think, needs just at least one person to love them and, and motivate them so that they can have a chance at a, at a good life. And so um, I have my first speaking event in November in California, so I'm very excited about that, and it's actually a fundraiser for the Calveras sheriff's department out in california who handled the case so this will be a dinner for all the donors that donate money to their dna testing so it's it's, it's such an honor to be invited there um and for that to be my first speaking event you're making such a difference in the foster care community and you're now making such a difference in the community of those who have lost a loved one to a, a monster. So what does that feel like for you to now be contributing to and making a difference in those families in their pursuit of closure, whether by submitting DNA or the like? 
um, here in California? You know, if I can, again, for me to just contribute to any aspect of this, whether it be the, the families of the victims, the foster children, social workers, if I can contribute something, um, I feel good about it. I feel like I owe someone. I owe someone, you know, because things could have been so different for me. And, you know, Bethany Christian Services was great. They handled my mom's They They honored her, her request of finding me the perfect family. They did that. They assisted me, you know, with grace and honor. The police department, you know, they gifted me with the letter and my closure. So I just, I just feel like I need to give back. And so any little thing that I do is, it's, it's very, um, I'm, I'm filled with gratitude. Stay with us. More of the Fox True Crime podcast after this. In what ways are you like your mother? Like in personality and character. Well, her, my birth dad says that I have a free spirit, a very sweet, um, giving personality and spirit. Um, I think that I look like her. And I think with knowing the decisions that she made when she was younger, um, she had a lot of common sense. And, and I think that I too got that from her. So that's really, that's really all I can say, you know, because I, I didn't know her and, and I didn't know anyone who knew her. So I, I just got my hands on something that uh, some of the witnesses on, in her part of the trial, it was like 10 people. And so now I'm going to try to reach out and find those people. Just I would love to speak to just someone who knew her, who had a relationship. And, and yeah, I spoke with her mom and, and her sisters, but that relationship, I, I want to speak just the people who knew her in California, her friends. Mm-hmm. What, how was she, what was she doing out there? You know, how was she living? I read an article um, or a blog, actually, where they said that my mom was very pretty and, and very shapely, and, and she just didn't look like she should have been in the areas that she was, like she didn't fit in. And so I think she just, she just was lost. You know, she had no guidance. I wish I knew, I wish I could answer more of how, how I was like her, um, but I just can't. Do you have a current relationship with your biological dad, the pastor? Do you stay in touch with him still? Yes, I do stay in touch with him. He's still in Michigan. And yeah, we have a great relationship. We, we talk. When I first met him, we talked almost every single day, every single day. Um, I was very, very excited to know that at least, you know, I still had one biological parent that, that I could actually, you know, have a relationship with. And your family your mom and your dad and your siblings that you were raised with, that they're your family. Um, how are they with you in this journey? And can you describe their support and the import of them here? Yes. So my mom, unfortunately, she passed away from cancer in 2016. I'm sorry. Um, and I actually um, told her, I was with her right before she passed, and I told her, I got a chance to tell her, thank you for adopting me and that I was going to take foster care and help the foster care community on a way bigger scale. Um, my parents, they always thought that I could move mountains. I was the child that did all of the stuff that their other kids wouldn't dare do. So I was like the daredevil and the go-getter. And um, so they just thought that I could do whatever 
I put my mind to. And so, and I knew that and they instilled that in me. And so I told her before she died, I said, hey, I am going to take foster care to another level. I said, I'm not going to get kids like you did. I can't do that. But I will help them in many, many, many different ways. And so I, that is my plan. And it sounds like I, I have no doubt you will be successful in that and that you will therefore have fulfilled your promise to both of your moms, Cheryl. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm so grateful for your story, for your perspective, for sharing it with us today. Thank you for trusting us to carry your message and your story carefully and adequately and accurately. And the final question is just, can you share how people can support your nonprofit? You know, give us the URL and any final message that you have for anyone listening. The final message would just, I would say is love on a child. You know, you never know. It doesn't have to be your child. You know, keep your eye open for abuse and, and, and mistreatment. You know, since this has happened, if I, I'm always, if I see kids, you know, I'm always aware, with, especially with all the sex trafficking going on and, and, you know, the abductions, these kids. So I'm always on alert trying to, to make sure, like, nothing's going on around me. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm, yes. I'm always worried about children. And um, so I would say, pay attention to, to kids and your kids as well. You know, pay attention to the children. They are our future. And sometimes they don't have a voice and we have to be their voices. And can you share the website for the Shania Rose? The website for Shania Rose is www.shaniarosecdc. Dot or, and that Shania is spelled S-H-A-N-I-Y-A-R-O-S-E-C-D-C.org. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you so much for your story. And um, I'm, I'm so grateful today for you and for your time today and for all of the impact that you are having on so many kids and the entire foster system and so many families. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreci- appreciate you reaching out. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com.